Romans chapter number 6 in your Bibles. We're going to be reading from verse 16 down through verse 23. And we're going to be beginning a new series, a four-week series uh, this week on a topic that will definitely be relative to all of us. We'll uh, give you the topic of the title of the series here in just a moment. Let's, I'll begin in verse 16, and then we'll read together the odd-numbered verses beginning in verse number 17, and we'll do that through the end of the chapter here. The Bible says in verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey... His servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Together, verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things, whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin, and become servants to God... Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the uh, end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to begin a new series this morning, as I mentioned. uh, And you may not see this in this passage yet, but you will momentarily. The title of the series is this, Money Matters. Money Matters. The title of the sermon is Dealing with Debt. Dealing with debt. Now, I know that on a day I'm going to preach on money is the day we have the most visitors show up. Isn't that how that works? Uh, Those of you that attend here regularly know I don't preach on money hardly ever. Um, In fact, when I became the pastor here five years ago, I would only preach one sermon a year on the topic because I just wasn't comfortable talking about money uh, from the pulpit. But the Lord began to work on my heart And he began to say, this is a topic that's in the Bible, and I'm to preach the whole counsel of God. And so relax, I'm not going to tell you to give all your money to Jesus today, amen? Uh, That's not where this is going per se. But I do do believe that uh, there are some issues in the Bible that need to be addressed that will greatly help the people of God. And I hope today your being here will not only give you a better understanding uh, of money and the Bible, but will also give you a better understanding of a biblical worldview of what God has in store for all of our lives, even beyond this topic of money. Let's pray this morning. Lord, help us as we talk about a big problem that exists in many, many people's lives, and that's debt. Uh, Lord, uh, the truth is money does matter, and how we spend our money matters. And Lord, how we live our lives when it comes to money matters. And Lord, uh, our lives can either demonstrate um, obedience and righteousness through the way we spend our money, or it can demonstrate a life of sin and greed through the way we live. So, Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves today. Help us to be willing to assess and know what is right. And, Lord, help us to leave here willing to make changes that would bring honor and glory to your name. Thank you for all those that came today. Lord, many others are watching online right now. Lord, may we all put aside the distractions. Lord, may we put our cell phones to the side and just for a few minutes have our Bibles 
And Lord, be in tune with what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in a crowd this size, inevitably, someone's cell phone goes off occasionally. So if you don't mind, take just a moment. Make sure your cell phone is on um, silent mode, and that way we can eliminate distractions. I'm going to make sure mine is as well this time. All right. Be bad if I told you that, then my phone went off. Amen? Okay. According to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for microeconomic data, American consumers ended 2019 with a total of $4.2 trillion in debt, not related to housing. Not related to housing. This is not counting mortgage debts. $4.2 trillion. We get all upset that our federal government is so deep in debt. Us Americans combined, we, we, we are not too far behind them. Uh, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for microeconomic data, this statistic, $4.2 trillion, they say much of this can be attributed to credit cards. According to a CNBC.com article that was updated on Wednesday, June 6, 2021, the average American has $90,460 in debt. Now, this one's going to hit a little closer to home, okay? Information provided by Experian, that's the credit company, Experian, showed that in 2019, residents of Connecticut held the third highest credit card balances monthly. Alaska was number one. I can't remember who was number two off the top of my head, but Connecticut holds the third highest credit card balances monthly of the 50 states. Credit card debt in Connecticut for 2019 was at $7,082 per household. Now, some more uh, information here for you. Here's the average debt balance by age groups, all right? You think, well, how am I doing for, compared to other people my age, all right? So Gen Z, this is ages 18 to 23, have an average of $9,593 in debt. How many here are 18 to 23? Raise your hand. Hopefully you don't have any debt. Amen? I'm, so, I'm assuming quite a bit of that would be um, living off credit cards while in college or uh, student loan debt, that, that type of thing. Millennials. Millennials. These are ages 24 to 39. Raise your hand if you're in that category, 24 to 39. All right. Some of you are afraid to raise your hand because millennials get judged so much. Hey, you Gen Xers, leave us uh, millennials alone. Amen? Millennials 24 to 39 carry an average debt of $78,396. 78000 All right, Millennials, here's your chance to judge the Gen Xers because they've got you outdone, okay? 40 to 55. Raise your hand if you're in that bracket, 40 to 55. Not if you wish you were in that bracket, <laughs> if you're in that bracket, all right? 40 to 55, this is Gen X. Average debt, $135,841. You got us doubled up. How about the baby boomers? 56 to 74. Raise your hand if you're in that bracket right there. Okay, some of you don't know what bracket you're in. Amen? 56 to 74. The good news is baby boomers have paid down a little bit of that 135000 uh, baby boomers are at $96,984. Uh, 
I have to say, to be 74 years old and still have $90,000 in debt, you're probably not going to get that paid off in your lifetime. The silent generation, they're 75 and up, I'm not going to have them raise their hand, amen? Because I'm smarter than that. 75 and up, the silent generation, they carry an average of $40,925 in debt. Now, like most subjects, God has a lot to say about money. And, and He even talks about debt within the pages of the Bible. Jesus, now listen to this, I was blown away when I read this. Jesus spoke more about money than He did about faith and prayer combined. Jesus spoke more about money than He did about heaven and hell combined. So those of you who are upset with me for preaching on this topic, back off. Amen? <laughs> in fact, there's only one subject that Jesus discusses more than money in the Gospels, and that's the subject of the kingdom of heaven. There are 39 parables in the four Gospels that Jesus gives. He talks about money directly in 11 of the 39 parables. And he talks about money indirectly in a few more of those. So, by one count, one out of every ten verses in the Gospels touches on the topic of money. And in the Gospel of Luke, money is talked about on average one out of every seven times. As at one out of every seven verses. So God has a lot to say on this topic. And so for me to stand up here and preach the Bible, and never to talk about money, I'm not doing the Word of God justice. So, um, those of you that are newer to our church, let me just uh, throw this out before we get into the message. Um, I, I really work hard uh, to not focus on um, grabbing money from people. Preachers have a reputation of being money grabbers. Uh, how, how much money can we wiggle out of someone's pocket if you've been here long, you know, you know that's not my style, okay? We've had some people donate some large amounts of money so we could do some things around here. Never one time, I can stand before God and say this, I can stand before a judge, put my hand on the Bible and say this, not one time have I ever gone to anyone and asked them for a dime. Every dime that's been donated to do the fixing up around here, the renovations around here, has been volunteered by some, uh, by some people in fact, regularly I'm telling people, no, you can't give that. Go home and pray about it for 30 days or 14 days or whatever. And then come back and let's talk about it. Uh, I don't want you to just give out of impulse. Let's pray about this first. Uh, um, I don't fret over finances. I'm not, that's not my style. Uh, when I got here to White Oak Baptist Church, we had about a quarter million dollars that we owed on the building. And we had some credit card debt. And... Um, uh, there were weeks where we just had enough money to make payroll, and that was about it. And never one time did I lose a wink of sleep over it. I've not won to lose sleep over, over money. Um, I trust God when it comes to money. I trust that this is His church, and He'll grow it and build it. Furthermore, we have a treasurer, church treasurer, uh, here at our uh, church who uh, inputs the giving of our church. Other than what I give, I don't know what any other member here gives to our church. If you tithe, that's great. If you don't tithe, I don't know that you don't tithe. 
If you were to put $1,000 in the plate today or you were to put a dollar in the plate or you were to put nothing in the plate, I don't get a, a printout of who gave what, nor do I go around trying to find out what people give. And so um, I just want to make sure everyone understands my heart on this topic going into this. Uh, however, God does speak on this topic, and so it needs to be addressed. And debt is a real problem. I believe debt is a real problem that plagues this church. Now, maybe I'm innocent and maybe I am naive. Both of those are realities. I grew up in a Christian home, and, and you could say I was sheltered growing up. And I'm a 37-year-old man, and so I, I'm not really sheltered anymore. I make my own decisions. But I do work here uh, full-time, and I do put myself around Christian people. I've worked some secular jobs along the way, regular jobs along the way, warehouse-type jobs. So, you know, I've been out in the, I've been out in, in, in the environments many of you work at, in. But maybe I'm innocent in thinking this, but here's what I see, okay? I see our weekly giving in our, that's printed in our church bulletin. In fact, you could, uh, if you wanted to right now, you could look and see what our weekly giving is. Okay? Now, I look at that, and I made an A in Algebra 2 in high school. So I, I know a little bit about math. High school is a long time ago, but I made an A in Algebra 2. And here's what I know. I know that the majority of our church is not giving 10% of their income to the Lord. Okay? I know that. All right? Uh, in fact, um, I would... Take a guess, a gander, that probably about 20% of our church does about 80% of the giving. And, and, and many of the rest of you, and again, I don't know who I'm even speaking to when I say this. This is a blind statement. But many of the rest of you will drop a $20 bill in here or there, and that's how the church gets funded, is 20% of the people do the heavy lifting, and the rest of you just sort of, when you can, uh, you throw a little bit in. If we were to give... The way the Bible teaches us to give, uh, boy, we could do so much more with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's, wh- here's where I would say I am maybe a little naive. For most of you, I don't think that you don't give because you don't love Jesus. I don't think the reason why you don't give is because you don't want to. Here's what I believe. I believe many of you don't give because you can't. You can't. You can't because you're obligated to pay bills every month to keep up with a lifestyle that you really shouldn't even have. And we live above our means. And then we're strapped for cash, and we sit down to write the check out to the church, and we can't give as much as we'd like because we're in debt. It's awful quiet in here this morning. Um... I could stand up here and I could make you feel real guilty about your debt. That's not the goal today. The goal is not to make you leave here feeling awful about your debt. The goal here this morning is to help you deal with that debt. Because if you can get out from underneath debt and your heart is to love the Lord and to give to the work of the Lord, not so the preacher can get a raise. I haven't taken a raise in the five years I've been here, and I don't plan on taking a raise anytime soon. I, the church pays, pays us a middle, middle, uh, uh, middle class income and and uh, we, do, we do great with, with that. We're able to get by just fine on that. I, I don't, other than a mortgage, I don't currently have any debt, praise the Lord. And uh, we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But uh, we're not looking for a raise. Uh, I believe some of our staff are a little underpaid. I'd like to give them a little bit of a raise. But why do we want more income in the plate? Is the purpose of putting income in the plate so that um, uh, we can just be a big, wealthy, expensive church? No. The purpose of getting more income in the plate is so we can reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
This world out here is hurting, and they need Jesus. And um, the reality of it is dollar bills equal more gospel tracts. Dollar bills equal more postage stamps. Dollar bills equal uh, more influence in the community to reach people for Jesus. And so the more we get, the more souls can be saved and the more people can be helped. So let me ask a question this morning. Why do we like money so much? The Bible says in 1 Timothy, the love, 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is the root of all evil. And Christians are really good at dancing around terms. The Bible says not to hate your brother, and you say, well, I, I don't hate him, I just strongly dislike him. Right? Um, I don't hate him, I just never want to see him again. Um, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, and we'll sit here this morning and we'll say, well, I don't love money. Well, can you at least admit that you like money? All right, I'm going to put my hand up here. How many of you are willing to admit you like money? Would you raise your hand? Don't lie. God knows you're in church. Amen? It's a sin to lie, it's a sin to lie anywhere, but especially in church. Why do we like it so much? Um, I made a list of why I think we like money so much. It provides necessities. Amen? It's important. It provides security. You know, if I were to lose my job, or you were to lose your job, and you had some money in the bank, you kind of take a deep breath and say, I've got six months of savings while I figure things out. That's nice, isn't it? Do you have that? Why else do we like money? Because it provides comfort. It provides comfort. Yeah, some of you in here are a little bit older. Again, self-identify, amen? Some of you in here are a little bit older, and uh, you, you come to church and you sit in the chair, and it's not as comfortable as it used to be. Isn't it nice to be able to go out and buy a cushion that you can put in that chair and sit on top of that cushion that's on top of a cushion? Right? Your mattress starts to get a little bit lumpy, and you're waking up with back pain. Isn't it nice to be able to go mattress shopping and know the money is there, right? Um, your car starts to not function as well. You take it to the mechanic and they're able to fix it and you're able to pay that bill. Or maybe go out and buy a new car, right? Money provides comforts. It provides influence. Now, um, unfortunately, people use their money to throw their weight around, you especially see this in the political world on both sides of the aisle, but people throw their weight around with money and they get what they want. Uh, I have been in churches where the pastor does know who gives what, and you know, um, you have a big giver in the church, and all of a sudden that person has more influence over the pastor than everybody else. That's not good. So money can provide influence. Why else do we like money? Because money can get us power. It can get us power. Someone uh, comes walking in. By the way, I don't think this has anything to do with color of skin. Someone comes walking into a restaurant and they're dressed nice. They've got a Rolex on their wrist, wearing expensive clothing, pulled up in a nice car. We're going to find a spot for them in our restaurant, even if we're booked. Somebody comes walking in off the street and it's clear that they haven't showered in a week. Even if we're not full, we're full, right? That guy might dine and dash. We can't have a meeting here. Money 
gets us power. We can dress to impress. Uh, we can wield our, our money uh, around and, and we can get privileges in life. Um, I, I, I enjoy going on trips and flying on airplanes. How many of you like airplanes? How many of you are nervous about airplanes? Okay, I, I enjoy airplanes. I, my family and I are getting ready to take a trip to Peru later this year, going down and going to be uh, doing a, a wedding ceremony for my sister-in-law. We're excited about that. And we're going to get on a plane and fly nonstop from New York City uh, to Lima. Now, there's one part about flying I don't enjoy. You know what it is? It's walking past the people in first class. I know what they're thinking. You know what they're thinking, don't you? Why do they have to board these people to walk right past me? Oh, their, their, uh, their inferiority is, is taking up my space. Can't you hurry up and get on the plane and don't look at me? Or they're sitting there, you know, with their, uh, with their fancy watch and ring on and they've got their, you know, $5 drink in their hand and their lobster on the table there in front of you and, and they're, they're staring at you almost like, ha-ha, you go back to coach, right? Um, people like that privilege, right? That VIP treatment. And money can get us that. And the last thing I put down here about why we like money so much is it provides us material goods. Now, whether you're into clothes shopping or you, maybe you're a tech geek, uh, I don't know what your niche is, what you like to spend money on, but it's nice when we have money in the bank and we want a new tool or we want a new toy, we want a new car, and we can just go and buy that material item. This morning, we're going to begin a four-week series on money. We're going to begin by looking at the topic of debt. Now, some debt is good debt. Uh, Angel and I bought a home back in 2017. And the reality is we don't own the home. The bank owns the home, right? I mean, you understand that if you quit paying the mortgage, they're going to come take it from you. I used to work for the bank. I would go inspect homes that were already foreclosed on and taken back by the bank. And if you don't pay the bill, eventually the bank takes the home back. And it seems like that's taking longer and longer for them to do, but that's what they do, right? And so until I finished paying the bank back for the money they loaned me, uh, I don't technically own the home. They do. Now, my name's on the title. Uh, my name and Angela's name is on the title, but we don't really own it. The bank owns it. Um, but the reality is that it's not bad debt because the home is worth right now far more uh, than uh, we spend on it. You say, well, why is that? Well, because uh, um, Governor Cuomo has done such a wonderful job in his state, everybody's leaving New York and coming to Connecticut. And so it's making house prop values go up. And so um, uh, thank God that we owe, we, we, uh, the home is worth more than we owe on it. Um, but most debt is bad. Most debt is bad. For years, I had credit card debt. In fact, up until uh, early this year, we had credit card debt. And can I tell you how that debt accrued? It accrued by buying things that I could not afford with money that I did not have. How many of you here ever in your life, current or past, have had credit card debt? Raise your hand. You know where credit card debt comes from most of the time? Buying things we cannot afford with money that we don't have. And usually they're things we don't really need. 
Now, I want to make sure I'm careful here. If you're in a situation like I was early on in my marriage, where, um, okay, well, just real quick, I got hired, I was a school teacher, I had the summer off, I was paid $19,000 a year. Angela's paid $10,000 a year. That's how we started out, okay? And so, I mean, we were just scraping by in church ministry, and we came to summer break. I was a school teacher, Angela was a school teacher, and I didn't have a job. And so um, a guy hired me and told me he was going to pay me, what, 18, 20 bucks an hour and work me 40 hours a week. I got my first paycheck, and he paid me $12 an hour, and he worked me 20 hours a week. And so I could not pay my rent on that. So I got a credit card, and I paid my rent with a credit card. I got my groceries with a credit card. And after two years of being married, we had about $4,000 in credit card debt. Were we wasting money? Were we being frivolous? No, we didn't have a choice. We were, in a bad, we were put into a bad spot uh, in that setup. Thankfully, a couple of years later, we paid that off and later got ourselves... Uh, really, I led our family to be in credit card debt. I'm not going to give Angela any blame on that. Angela's very, very good with money. I'm the spender, she's the saver. How many of you in your marriage, one of you is the spender and one of you is the saver, okay? Raise your hand if you're sitting next to the spender, amen? You'll pay for that later. How many of you, both of you are spenders? That's a problem. That's a real problem, right? We're both of you are spenders. But I led my family to be in some credit card debt and... Um, we, uh, we lumped it all into one monthly payment, and we just finished paying that off uh, early this year. And so we, we thank God for that. So I just want to make this clear. I'm not standing up here, the, the financial guru. Um, I'm not a financial guru, all right? I thank God we're out of debt. Out of, outside of our home, we don't have any debt. It has been a long, um, difficult learning curve for me and my family. Um, and you may be here today and feel as though, man, here he goes, he's going to get on my debt. If you are in debt right now, I was a few months ago where you are. All right? So I'm not throwing stones at anyone, but I do believe the Word of God can help us. I do believe the Word of God can speak to us. Um, I, I, I believe this morning that if we're going to deal with financial debt, then we must reshape our thinking on money altogether. We must understand debt from a biblical worldview. We must understand money from God's perspective. We must understand that we will one day be held accountable for how we spent the money that God has given us to steward on His account. So we're going to look at three main points this morning. Each point will have a couple of subpoints. And you can see that on the back of the bulletin there, there's a fill-in-the-blank outline. I encourage you to take notes as we go. Let's see what God's Word has to say as we begin this series, Money Matters, as we look at this title, Dealing with Debt. Okay, point number one this morning, notice your master. Your master. People want to buck authority. That's in our nature. Uh, we want to be the one that is uh, calling the shots. We want to be the one that's in charge. And we don't want anybody telling us, what to do. Now, maybe you have grown in that area and you've become good at following rules and, 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 and submitting to authority, but it is in all of our nature to buck authority. And the reality is this morning that um, uh, we don't want to have a master, but the truth is everyone here serves a master. Everybody does. 
Everyone here has a master. You say, well, I'm my own, uh, I'm, my, I'm in charge of my life. Nobody tells me what to do. And I would say, you don't really understand how life works if you think that's the case. And I'm going to prove that to you uh, right now. Uh, here's the truth. Either God is your master or Satan and sin is your master. One of those two is your master. You are either a servant to Satan or you're a servant to God. You cannot be, uh, you cannot live outside of the boundaries of one of those two kingdoms. Either God is your master or Satan and sin is your master. Let me give you an A, B, and a C here. Notice letter A, sin's enslavement. Sin's enslavement. We're going to get a theological lesson first before we get into the financial side of this. Look at letter A with me, sin's enslavement. Look at Romans chapter 6 and look at verse number 16. The Bible says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants uh, ye are to whom ye obey. Look here, whether of sin unto death, sin unto death, you're either a servant of sin unto death or you're a servant of obedience unto righteousness. Obedience unto righteousness. Either this morning you're here and you're living under a sin and sin is your master, Satan is your master, or the Lord Jesus Christ is your master and you are obedient to Him unto righteousness. Look down at verse number 20 with me. Romans 6 verse 20. For when ye were servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Meaning, there were no requirements on you to do anything right because you were living under the kingdom of a ruler named Satan and you were only bound to do things that were wrong. You were not obligated to do anything right. Verse 21, What fruit have ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And what's uh, what's this saying here? In 20 and 21, it's saying that when you were a servant to Satan and sin, uh, all you were required to do by your master, Satan, was to sin and to do wrong. But the end result of uh, of this, the fruit of sin, brings death. So what exactly are the markers or the fruits from being a servant of sin? Turn Turning your Bibles over to Galatians 5. Hold your place there in uh, Romans 6. Now, this morning, I'm just going to tell you, we're We're going to use our Bibles a lot. So if you're new to White Oak Baptist Church, again, several visitors here today, one of the markers of our church is that we believe that the answers to life are found in the Word of God and not found in a man's opinion. And so I'm going to take the Bible and I'm going to show you what the Scripture says and we're going to expound on the Scripture. I'm not just going to give you half a verse and then tell you what I think. Amen? And so get your Bibles out and get ready. I may at times read faster than you can turn. Don't get frustrated by that. If that happens to you, then just you can close your Bible uh, with those passages and just listen closely. The longer you come, the better you'll get at uh, finding your way around the Bible. Look with me, Galatians 5, and look at verse number 19. It says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, or made obvious, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, Variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings. That word revelings means the party lifestyle. And such like of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that ye which do such things shall not inherit 
the kingdom of God. If these are the markers of your life, if these uh, items here describe the fruits of your life, then uh, you're not part of the kingdom of God, uh, Galatians 5 says. So uh, how can we tell that we're a servant to sin? Now, you may not be guilty of all of these, but if your life is marked by Partying. If your mark, life is marked by wrath and envyings, if your uh, life is marked by hatred, if your life is marked with uh, seditions and living a life that is filthy and unclean in the sight of God, then my friend, that's a sign that you are living enslaved to sin. Now, by the way, Romans chapter 5 tells us that we're all born under the condemnation of sin because of Adam, our forefather. He uh, was born into this world uh, and uh, rather made into this world perfect. He chose sin. And so all of us are born enslaved to sin. If you're here today and you have done wrong, uh, then uh, rather you're here today and you're born, you're breathing air, then my friend, you are born under a system of slavery and Satan is the taskmaster. All of us here today were born under the system of sin. We owe a great debt because of that sin. Look at letter, uh, rather look at Romans chapter 6. Look back at verse number 23. What is the end result of this debt, this sin debt that we have accrued. It says there in the beginning of the verse, the wages or the debt of sin is death. It's death. Ultimately, the price that is to be paid, the debt that we owe because of the immoral deeds that all of us have done is debt. We are all in debt. Now, um, we talked about financial debt in the opening. We're going to get back to talking about financial debt here in a few minutes. But please understand, the greatest debt that you owe is not to Visa or MasterCard. It's not to some bank for a mortgage. The greatest debt you owe is a sin debt that you cannot possibly even begin to pay off. No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, you are so deep in debt that there's nothing you can do about it. In fact, in fact, uh, we owe such a debt that um, God is going to hold us accountable one day. And if you try to offer your own righteousnesses to pay off that debt, uh, even if God were to lay that up against the balance of your sins, my friend, it would not pay, even come close to paying the debt. It's as if, as though I were to call a credit card company and I owed them $100,000 in credit card debt and I were to say to them, I've got 20 bucks, can we settle? You take your righteousnesses to God and He's got books and books and books in heaven of all of the sin that you've done. And it's like laying a $5 bill down when you owe a million dollars in debt. And God's going to say, one day God's going to look at you and say, if that's all you've got to offer... I'm sorry, my friend, that does not pay the debt. You say, oh, I'm not that bad. Oh, pastor, come on now. I'm not that bad of a guy. I'm not that bad of a girl. How bad could I really be? Take, let, let's just take a minute and let me show you how sinful you are, how sinful I am. Between a proud thought, between a little lie, as we would call it, between a, a, a bad word, a, an unkind word, a, a gossiping and criticizing and murmuring and complaining, it is fair to say all of us sin well more than three times a day. In fact, I don't know that I've ever met anyone that sins less than three times a day. If we were to cut the year down to 333 days and multiply that by three, you're already at a thousand sins a year. You're probably more like two, three, four, five thousand sins a year. But to be conservative, a thousand sins a year 
put three zeros behind your age, you've already committed at least that many sins against God. You really want to try to look God in the eye and tell Him how good of a person you are? My friend, look up here at me. You can fool me. You, you can fool the people around you. You cannot fool God. He knows everything you've done. He knows every thought you've thunk. He knows. We are in debt. We are enslaved to sin. Letter B, notice, salvation's exchange. Salvation's exchange. Look back at Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The Bible says, For the wages, the debt of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through, paid by, Jesus Christ our Lord. God in heaven, He looked down at mankind. He looked down at humanity, trapped in a situation where they were in debt to sin. Uh, They were enslaved to Satan. God looked down and said, they will never, ever, ever be able to pay off that debt. But God looked throughout heaven. He looked at the great vast of wealth that He had. He looked at His Son, Jesus, and He said, I'm going to send my only begotten Son to the earth because He can pay the price. And Jesus, He paid the debt of sin on the cross. You may be here today and you're trying your very best to be the very best you can. You're trying your very best to work your way to heaven. My friend, you will never ever work yourself out of that debt. But my friend, Jesus Christ has already paid your debt. And He's waiting for you To bow out and say, I can't do it, Lord, but you did it. And I believe in you. You see, salvation's exchange was that God looked at the ledger of debt that you had with your sin, and Jesus came along and He died on the cross. My friend, the last thing Jesus uttered when He died on the cross, He said, Tetelestai. Tetelestai is a word that means it is finished. Tetelestai was also a financial term. If you had a debt and there was a ledger uh, that you owed back in the, the day Jesus lived, you'd go in and you'd make payments against that debt. And once that ledger had been paid off, they would take a stamp, they would press it in ink, and they would stamp that card and it would say, Paid in full to Telestai. And when Jesus hung on that cross, God took all of the sin of mankind. He took the debt that all of mankind had accrued. And He put it up on Jesus on that cross. And for three hours, He suffered. For three hours, He paid a debt. And He got to the very end. And right before He gave up the coast, He cried out, Paid in full! The debt is paid! You get to heaven one day and that that... That, that act of Jesus has not been laid on your ledger. You're going to be turned into hell. And God's going to judge you, Revelation 19 tells us. He's going to judge you by your works. That means He's going to take the good works that you offer, and then He's going to look at your debt and He's going to say, that doesn't cut it. You had the chance to have that debt forgiven, and you didn't take it. My friend, before we can talk about financial debt, we must understand that salvation is about having a moral debt paid in full. Now, let me move on to letter C. Letter C, let's talk about the Savior's expectation. By the way, I did skip a verse that's very important. Let me go back to letter B. All right, I apologize. Let's go back to letter B for a moment. We'll come back to letter C in a moment. 
Take your Bibles, you're in Romans. One book to the right is the book of 1 Corinthians. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 for me. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, you'll hear preached about living a holy lifestyle, and and that's definitely in that passage, but I want to focus on something more financial this morning. Look at verse number 20. It's it's hard to hear verse 20 without verse 19, but I want to focus in on verse 20 right here. Look here. It says, talking about those who have let Jesus's... Jesus' uh, sacrifice be laid on their account. Look at verse 20. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirits, which are God's. Now watch this. Before I put my faith in Jesus, I was enslaved, I was in chains, I was in bonds uh, uh, to Satan and sin. I could not help but sin. Everything I did was wrong. My very thoughts were wrong. My very acts were wrong. I lived under the curse of sin. Everything I did wrong was a sin. I was bound, everything I did was a sin. I was bound by chains of sin. And one day I turned to Jesus as a small child and I said to Jesus, I'm a sinner and I know you died for me. I believe in you to save me. And what happened that day is Jesus came over and he laid down uh, the moral price of my my debt. He covered my debt. He freed me from sin. He took the chains off and He brought me over and He made me part of His family. I was a servant to sin and Satan. Now I've been made a servant to righteousness, holiness. I've been made a servant to my Savior. So all of you here this morning, you're either a servant to sin and Satan or you're a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience. But why? Because we have been bought with a price. What was the price? The price was the life of Jesus on the cross. Here you are today. You've been bought. Listen, you don't get to just walk around and live however you want and talk however you want and do whatever you want and behave however you want. Listen, you have a master. His name is Jesus Christ and there are some things He expects out of you. Now, I want you to imagine with me, if you will, uh, that uh, I were to get into an airplane and fly over to the Middle East where slavery is still a thing. And I were to go find a child who is living in slavery. And I were to pay the debt, uh, the amount required to purchase that slave from that person and make that slave mine. Okay, you say, well, you're participating in slave trade. Well, my intentions are pure. I'm going to take this person and I'm going to set them free. And so I pay the price and they become mine and I put them on a plane and I fly them back to the United States of America and I get them all their paperwork and I get them settled. Listen, here's the deal. They were a slave there. Now they should have a sense of sense of love and admiration and duty to honor my request and what I ask of them, right? I took them out of a horrible situation where they were being abused regularly and I have given them freedom. Listen, Jesus, when He saved you, He gave you freedom, but you're still He's still your master and we're still to serve Him. Think about Joseph. You remember Joseph? He was sold into slavery by his brothers. And here you have uh, Joseph. He's now owned by a band, I believe it was Midian, Midianite men, but I may have the wrong group there. I believe it was Midianite men, and they took him, and uh, they put him in chains, and they put him on a, on, a, on a camel or horse or donkey, and they marched him through the desert away from his brothers. And then they got to Egypt, and they put old Joseph up on a platform. Now, don't miss what I'm saying here. This is important. And Potiphar came along. Potiphar was a wealthy man who worked for the king of Egypt. Uh, Potiphar came along, and he saw Joseph standing up there. Joseph was a strong, strapping young man, and he paid a price to buy Joseph and make Joseph his servant. Now watch this, watch this. When Joseph was a servant or slave to the Midianites, he had no quality of life. 
But then when he moved into Potiphar's house, he began to have a quality of life. He had his own bed to sleep in. He had food to eat. He had structure around him. He could thrive. He, he, could, he could actually uh, work his way up a chain to where he would become in charge of all of Potiphar's house. Potiphar trusted him that much. Now notice that when he was owned by the Midianites, he was a slave. And when he was owned by Potiphar, he was a slave. This over here gave him no freedom. This over here, he had freedom to function. My friend, uh, oftentimes I think that we make a mistake uh, uh, in, in the way uh, the Bible is handled and taught and preached. We seem to think that because we've gotten saved, that means we can just go live however we want. Right? Oh, I've got my fire insurance. I'm not going to hell. And that's great. That's true. But you have a master named God and He cares about the way you live. He has some expectations. He wants you to follow. And the reality is, if you don't follow those expectations, Hebrews 13 tells us, For whom the Lord loveth, He correcteth, even as a son in whom He delighteth. How many here know what it means to be spanked by the Lord Jesus Christ? How many know what it means to be corrected by God? If you don't, that might be a a, a time for you to stop and analyze whether or not you're even saved. God corrects those who He loves. Why? Because He's your master. And as your master, He's put some expectations on you. What are those expectations? Go back to Romans 6. Romans 6. There are some expectations God's given His children. Notice uh, below here, notice that He's given us um, the expectation of obedience. Obedience. Look back at Romans chapter 6 and look at verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey... His servants, uh, ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now, uh, someone says, I don't want to obey God. The Bible's full of rules. You know, Satan is full of rules too. Satan's full of rules, and you're either going to obey Satan or you're going to obey the Lord. And Satan's smart. He gets you to think, that, oh, I'll just do whatever I want. Well, that's one of Satan's rules, that you go live however you want. Boy, that doesn't ever end good. If I'm going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, then I need to learn to be obedient to the Lord. How about this one out of Romans 6:17? How about gratitude? Look at verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed God from the heart, that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. What's that mean? You, you, you turn to salvation. God be thanked. I think of the psalmist who said, "I'd rather be a keeper in the tent of the Lord, or keep, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked." As a pastor, I work with all kinds of people. I see folks coming to my office who are addicted to drugs. I see folks coming to my office who are having deep, deep, deep marriage problems because of adulteries and affairs and pride and selfishness. And I sit there and I say to them, do you want to fix your marriage? Do you want to fix your life? Yes, then you need to stop doing these things. And you know the reality is, watch this, they can't. Because they're a slave to sin. And then I get in my car and I go home to my wife and my kids And I'm no better than the people who sit in my office broken by sin. But God's grace has reached out and it's touched my life. And I go home and I see 
what happens when you get to live a life of obedience to the Lord. I've got a wife who loves me deeply. I've got kids who respect me and obey me. And I get on my knees every morning or sometime during the day and I say to God, thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for allowing me to be your servant. Now, do you know it's totally possible for you to be saved, but yet you keep running back to the other master? You see, my friend, you've been forgiven of a greater debt than you'll ever even begin to comprehend And for that, He deserves your obedience. For that, He deserves your gratitude. For that, He deserves your fruit of holiness. Look at verse 22. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Now, we look back at Galatians 5 a little bit ago and we saw the fruit of sinful living, the markers of sinful living. What are the fruits of those who have been saved? Well, it's holiness. It's living the way the Lord wants me to live. It's living a life that pleases God. It's separating from the world, not for the sake of looking down my nose at the world and thinking I'm better than them, because I'm not. I'm nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. But holiness ought to manifest itself in the life of a Christian. I just want to ask you a question this morning Who is your master? Who is your master? Because this has a lot to do with how we spend our money. Who is your master? Is it sin and Satan or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you loyal to your master? Especially if it's the Lord Jesus Christ, are you loyal to Him this morning? We owed a debt so great. We were under the curse of sin and condemned to hell. There was no way out. Then Jesus stepped in, full of mercy and grace. He paid our debt and bought the rights to our life. Though the Bible, uh, through the Bible, He has given us some duties uh, that we are to perform. We have been left here to live this life for the purpose of accomplishing His specific plan or will that He has for our lives. Okay, now here's where we're going to transition and start talking about money. I want to ask you a question to make you think a little bit. Why didn't Jesus take you home to heaven the moment you got saved? Right? Because when we get to heaven, we're going to be given a, we're going to be given a, a, a new heart. We're going to all of the pain and hurt and sorrow and strife. Listen, the Bible tells us at the end of the book of Revelation, He's going to wipe away all tears from our eyes. Can you imagine that? having nothing but joy for the rest of your life? Why didn't God just take you to heaven the moment you got saved? Can I tell you why? He has a specific purpose and plan for your life He wants you to accomplish. Every single one, young and old, if you're breathing air, everyone put your hand in front of your face. You know what that means? That means God's got a purpose for your life. That's why God left you here. Okay, I'm asking another question here. Have you figured out what it is? You know, it's not just to wake up every morning and run the hamster wheel of life and get the American dream. God's given you a purpose to life. Are you living it? Now, that brings us to the topic of money. God left you here for a purpose to be fulfilled, and He gives you money to be able to fulfill it. 
not your purpose, His purpose for you. All right, point number two. His money. His money. We looked at your master. Let's talk about His money. Letter A. Letter A, the possessor of all wealth. The possessor of all wealth. You say, well, it's not God's money. That's my money. Okay. Is it yours or is it the Lord's? I think we already know the answer, but how do we behave? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 7. We're going to do a Bible study right here. Get your Bibles out. Get ready to turn. We're going to turn to every single one of those passages. Uh, Let's see. Two in the New Testament, two in the Old Testament. We're going to let the Word of God tell us who owns the wealth of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 7. It says here, and by the way, this context, the context of this verse, if you go back up to 1 and 2, which we'll look at verses 1 and 2 later in the message, but 1 and 2 talk about wealth and money and how we're a steward of it. For this passage is talking about money. Look at verse 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? And if thou hast not received it, What's it saying there? Why are you boasting about how much money you have? Whether you have a lot of money or a little bit of money, it ain't ain't yours anyway. It's the Lord's. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. That's the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look with me at verse number 17. Who owns all the wealth of the world? All of the money of the world is property of God. I used to work a, a job in a warehouse, and they had something called chep pallets. They were really heavy, thick, blue or red pallets. And on every one of them, it said, property of chep. And I thought, who is chep? Right? Or where is chep? I, I never knew, but property of chep. When you got saved, God imprinted on your heart property of God. And that includes everything that we own. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 17, And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. That he may establish his covenant, which he swear to thy father as it is this day. Oh, I can sense maybe in someone's heart today, they think, well, if it's God's money, He didn't go to work last week and earn it. He didn't sweat. He didn't work overtime. He's not the one that made the sacrifices. I made those sacrifices. It's my money. And God steps back and says, hold up, hold up. Who gave you the strength to go earn that money? Who gave you the breath? Whose air did you breathe in order to go make that money? God says, it's my heir. I give you the strength. My mercies are how you get that. Turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles, just a couple of books to the right there from Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you got First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Look at verse number 11. It says, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and the earth is Thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and Thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor 
come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and thine hand is it uh, to make great, and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee, and give praise, uh, and praise thy glorious name. What's this verse saying? Everything is God's. The glory of the earth is God. The majesty of the earth is God's. The material goods of this earth are God's. Riches and honor, they come from Thee. Thou reignest over all. It all belongs to the Lord. So who is the owner of all wealth? Well, God is the owner of all wealth. It's not my money. It's not your money. It's all God's money. Why? Because we are in debt to Him. I tried to take point one, your master, and show you how we are in debt to him. There's a story in Matthew 18 of a man who owed a great debt, financial debt. It was a debt, uh, it, it, most conservative estimates of the translation of, uh, of, of money there would put him well into the several million dollars in debt. Some would put it in the billions. Regardless, the point is, it was so astronomical, the man was never going to pay it back. And the king looked down at him and said, it's forgiven. It's forgiven. Could you imagine getting a call from your bank today saying your mortgage is gone, erased. We forgave your, your debt. Maybe you're renting. If your landlord called and said, you don't need to pay any more rent. Those of you that have your mortgage paid off, can you imagine if the state's uh, tax collector called and said, no more property tax for you as long as, long as you live there. It would be a happy day, wouldn't it? Some of you pay a lot in property taxes. Be a happy day. Imagine having that debt forgiven. God looked down at me and you. When we called on his name for salvation, he said, I don't just forgive you of a million dollars. I don't just forgive you of a billion dollars. I don't just forgive you of a trillion dollars. I forgive you of an eternity in hell. Now that's a God we owe everything to. God now is your master, looks at you and says, how can you pay me back? I'm going to tell you how you can pay me back. You can live your life for me. Oh, you're going to need some money to get along? I own all the money in the world. Let me send some of that your way. All right, so we see the possessor of all wealth. Quickly, let her be noticed, God's process to obtain wealth. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on this. I'm going to make a couple of comments because of time's sake, and we're going to move on. Proverbs 6, 6, and 9, 6 through 9 talk about the ant that uh, get, uh, goes about working to get her uh, food for the winter. She's, uh, the ant is a planner, and it says to consider her ways. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3 tells us that if a man does not work, neither should he eat. Um, uh, all wealth, uh, must, uh, we, we must diligently work to obtain it. Uh, there are no shortcuts to get wealthy with God. Proverbs 13:11 says, Wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished. Look at people who win the lottery. But he that gathereth by labor shall increase. How do we get God's wealth? You must go to work. We live in a lazy, 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 lazy culture. We're looking for a handout. Oh, government's sending out more checks. Keep them coming, Uncle Sam. Yeah, we're gonna have to, our kids are going to have to pay that off one day, by the way. Right? How can I get this assistance? And how can I get that assistance? And by the way, if you're legitimately disabled, 
I am not at one moment throwing a single stone at you for collecting that. If you've paid into unemployment, and, and well, you can go get a job right now. Amen. There's, everyone's hiring. But it, it, when the market's tight and you can't get a job and you collect unemployment after you played into it, that's fine. But listen, we must understand that God's process to obtain His wealth is spelled W-O-R-K. When we work, we get His money so that we can fulfill His purpose. Not our purpose. His purpose. Alright, let's finish up the message. Number one, your master. Number two is money. Number three, let's talk about your management. Your management. I wanted to make sure philosophically we laid the foundation. Now we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of debt. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We were just there. We looked at verse 7 a few minutes ago. I told you this passage was a, a passage about finances. Let's look back at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Thank you for hanging in there with me. This sermon's quite uh, going to end up being a little bit longer uh, than the average message, longer than I've preached in a while. Uh, but I believe what we're covering is important. And so do your best to pay attention. I'll do my best to keep your attention. Look at verse 1 there. It says, Let a man so account of us... Uh, as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required that a man be found faithful. And so uh, God, every two weeks, has uh, a paycheck deposited into my bank account through my employment here at White Oak Baptist Church. You are paid by going to work, and every week or two, or maybe some of you are paid on a monthly basis, that check is deposited into a bank account. You receive those funds, and at that moment, God looks at me and says, okay, I've put my money in your account, now go forth and steward it well. So I want to ask you a question, Christian. Are you stewarding his money well? All right? Letter A. Notice here. Notice here. The debts of covetousness. The debts of covetousness. Can I tell you why we get into debt? Because we're covetous. Now, again, I gave the disclaimers at the beginning of the message. The average person is in debt because they are covetous. I read all sorts of information putting the sermon together this week. Actually, over the last several weeks, I've been uh, compiling things for this series. And I've read this stat, some form of this stat, in about 20 different places, okay? So I could give you a source, but I think that as many people say this, is, it, it, it's just true. And I, I think the reason why we get into debt is because this is true. Watch this. The average American household spends anywhere from 7% to 10% more than they make annually. How many of you understand that's bad economics? If your income exceeds your outgo, that's going to be your downfall. Right? You can't spend more than you make. That's the most obvious thing I've ever said from this pulpit. But how many of us do it anyway? You cannot spend more than you make. You have to learn to live within your means. Why do we spend more than we make? Because we think we need things that we don't need. Christians need to figure out the difference between what a need is and what a want is. You need food to eat. 
But you don't have to get that food at Longhorn Steakhouse every week. Or Olive Garden or McDonald's. You need a place to sleep. It doesn't have to have four garages connected to it. And if you, by the way, if you eat at Longhorn, I eat at Longhorn sometimes. If you eat at Longhorn or you have a house with three or four garages to it and you can afford that and you're living within your means, praise the Lord. I, 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 the message isn't for you. I'm talking about people who are trying to live above what they can make. We're covetous. You know, uh, that makes the top ten. Exodus chapter 20 verse 17 says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife nor his manservants, nor his maidservants, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. In today's terminology in our culture today, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, thou shalt not covet uh, uh, the the landscape uh, team that cuts his lawn and uh, the maids that clean their house. Uh, Thou shalt not covet his his automobile or his pickup truck or his flashy uh, watch, uh, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want everyone to turn over here. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I'm, I'm going to cut the sermon short here uh, on us a little bit. I'll give you the blanks, but I'm going to really trim this last part down. Look at verse number 10. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. I really want to drive this home. Look here. It says, For the love of money is the root of all evil. Now that part of the verse Christians and non-Christians alike are familiar with, but I want to really focus in on this last part here. It says, Which while some, notice that next word, coveted. Some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Money, while it seems great, Donald Trump said back in the 90s, he said, um, uh, the person that thinks money doesn't buy happiness uh, doesn't shop at the right stores. Can I tell you that money will buy you short-term happiness, but oftentimes... Oftentimes, it brings sorrow and burden and trouble. Many people work on Sunday so that they can keep up with a lifestyle that they cannot afford and should not have. Many people live under a load of stress because they are paying back Visa and MasterCard for lavish dinners and trinkets and toys they cannot afford. Many Christians cannot give to the church, give to the Lord, give to the work of the Lord because they are tied down to financial obligations that involve covetous decision-making. They pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7 says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Watch this now. Covetousness most usually ends in deep debt. Covetousness causes us to have a master other than God. That's really what I want to drive at this morning. He is your master if you're saved. But now you owe these debts to all these people. You can't fulfill the work of this master because now you've tied yourself down to all these other masters so that you can have things that you shouldn't have. Letter B, notice the deliverance of contentment. I'm not going to have you turn there, but I want you to listen very closely to this verse. In fact, this is a verse I'm personally working on memorizing. Psalm 119, verse 36 says this. It says, Incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. 
Incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. You know what that means? Watch this now. Colossians 3. I was going to read 1 through 10. I have way too much material for the message today. I apologize for that. Verse 2 of that passage says this. And by the way, on your own, go study Colossians 3, 1 through 10. Verse 2 says this. Set your affections on things above, not on things of this earth. You know, if I could just come up with two or three hundred more dollars, I could buy the next iPhone when it comes out in cash. If I could come up with another twenty grand, I, I, I could move up from a Toyota Corolla to a, to a Lexus. You know, if I, if I just work on Sundays for a couple of years, I, I, I can get that promotion at work and then we can buy that, that, that nicer, bigger home. One day, you're going to stand before God. And God's going to ask you a question. He's going to say, did you do what I left you there for? And you're going to say, well, I bought that house. And God's going to say, that house is burning up with a fervent heat. God's going to say, did you, did you use my money to get my will accomplished? And you're going to say, I would have, but I never could get visa paid off. You see, when we learn to be content with living within our means, we get delivered from financial debt. How do you become rich? You become rich by having what you want and wanting what you have. The debts of covetousness, deliverance of contentment. Let her see, lastly, notice the demands of Christ. One more passage, Romans 13. Please turn there. Romans 13, verse number 7. He paid a debt I could not owe. I owed a debt... I could not pay. I needed someone to take my sins away. Jesus paid that debt. He delivered me from hell. He's my master. He gives me his money. Are my eyes on things above or my eyes on things of the earth? Am I living a a lifestyle that makes me comfortable or am I more concerned about the cause of Christ? Romans 13, look at verse 7. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, owe no man anything but to, love, but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Look at the very end of verse number 9. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. What is the purpose of money? We are to use it to love our neighbor so that we can bring him closer to God than he currently, ha- uh, currently is. God says we are to use our money to pay, pay your taxes Stay out of debt and love your neighbor. Pay, uh, uh, pay your taxes, stay out of debt, love your neighbor. Pay your taxes, stay out of debt, love your neighbor. And by the way, when you give your money to the church here, what are you doing? You're giving to a church who effectively reaches into the community and helps you to corporately love your neighbor. And so pay your debts, uh, or rather pay your taxes, stay out of debt, and love your neighbor. All right, I'm going to finish with three concluding thoughts. I'm going to give them to you real quick here. Concluding thought number one, write these down somewhere. Number one, prioritize the eternal over the temporary. Prioritize the eternal over the temporary.
Number two, learn to simplify your lifestyle. Learn to simplify your lifestyle. I I would hope that one day when I get to heaven that God would let me walk up to him with all of the people behind me who put their faith and trust in Jesus to save him because of my witness. Now, I, I doubt he'll do that. Wouldn't that be great? Paul said, you are my crown. Speaking of those who he led to the Lord. When I get to heaven, you all are going to be my crown. Paul was for the most part homeless. A nomad, a traveler, a wanderer preaching the gospel. John the Baptist was homeless. A nomad, a wanderer, a traveler preaching uh, the coming of Jesus. Um, Jesus was homeless. He said, I have nowhere to lay my head. And I'm not saying that you all need to go be, we all need to become homeless today, but what I am saying is we need to simplify our lifestyle so we can focus on what really matters. Number three, if you carry a balance each month, cut up your credit cards. If you carry a balance each month, cut up your credit cards. Best decision I made about four years ago, five years ago, is I took a pair of scissors, I chopped up my credit cards, I couldn't cancel the accounts because I still owed money, but I chopped up the credit cards and I threw them away. Then once those debts got paid off, every time I go into Home Depot or JCPenney, they all, oh, would you like our credit card? Nope. Sometimes I'll look at them and say, don't tempt me. <laughs> now some of you here can pay that balance off every month and you, you get the reward of the points or whatever that is. If you're capable of doing that and you have a, a track record of doing that, that's great. But if you carry a monthly balance, cut up the credit cards and get rid of them and learn to live within your means. The greatest debt we owe is not on a credit card or a mortgage. It's the Lord Jesus Christ for paying our sin debt. Everything we do ought to be to to better His kingdom. Let's not let poor financial decisions keep us from the main thing. The main thing. It would be really good this morning if a husband and wife got together and prayed and began to just commit to a process, getting out of debt. You're here today and you say, I don't have someone to help me with that process. Call the church office. We have people here that are really, really good with money who are committed to sitting down and helping folks get out of debt. We'll help you with that. Let's make decisions this morning. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Every head bowed. Every eye closed. First question I want to ask this morning is this. Have you let Jesus pay your sin debt? You see, if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus to take away your sin, then you still owe that debt. Jesus wants to pay that debt for you. He already died and made the transaction. He's waiting on you to let him make it on your behalf. You must call on his name by faith, believing, and he'll save you. Is there one here today that would say, Pastor Lejeune, I don't know that I've ever asked Jesus to forgive me of my sin. I don't know that if I were to die that I would go to heaven. Pastor Lejeune, would you pray for me? Now, before I ask you to raise your hand, let me just say, I'm not going to embarrass anyone. I would never point you out, call your name out. But I, and, and everyone else, no one else is looking but I would like to personally pray for you. So if you're here today and you don't know you're going to heaven, 
Would you just signify that by raising your hand, Pastor? Would you pray for me? I just don't know if I were to die. I see one hand. Is there another? I just don't know. I just don't know. If you raised your hand, or maybe you should have raised your hand, would you just look up here at me just for a moment with everyone else's heads bowed and eye closed? Would you look up here at me? Thank you for being honest. Sir, I'd like to speak with you after the service this morning and just help you to get that debt settled with God once and for all. I'll be standing in the back. Why don't you come up and shake my hand after church? Thank you. How many here would say, Pastor Lejeune, whether I'm in debt or not, there, there are some things in my life through the message I see. I need to get busy about the work of, of God. Whether you have financial debt in the way or not, you, you say, Pastor, pray for me that I'll get more serious about doing the work God has for my life. Quit pursuing earthly pursuits that at the end of the, end of the day are just not going to matter. Pastor, here's my hand. Would you pray for me? I see those hands. I see those hands. One more question. This one's quite personal. If you're not comfortable raising your hand, I understand. But I think honesty does us a lot of good. How many here would say, Pastor, debt is something that's plagued me for a long time. Pastor, pray for me. Financial debt's plagued me for a long time. Pray for me that I'll get this under control. If that's you, would you show, just raise your hand? Financial debt's plagued me for a long time. Pastor, would you pray for me? I see those hands. And listen, if you didn't raise your hand, that's a tough, tough question. I understand. Whether you raise your hand or not, I hope you'll deal with it. Lord, help us this morning as we make decisions for you. Thank you for the Bible, how it touches on every topic. Work in our midst. In Jesus' name.